My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. If you've had a chance to watch a television show, I've only caught a couple episodes on an airplane probably, called The Good Place. Uh, the Good Place is a sitcom, and it's basically uh, the simple idea that a group of people, especially one lady, the protagonist, uh, they die and they end up in The Good Place, and The Good Place as opposed to The Bad Place. And the deal with The Good Place is that you've earned up enough I guess, moral points in your lifetime to make it to the good place. And it's a place of paradise. It was crafted and architected by an angel named Michael. Sounds real biblical, right? And uh, life is supposed to be bliss as opposed to going to the bad place, which we don't want to talk about, right? Well, kind of the joke and the running thing with the story of the series is that the protagonist knows she got to the wrong place. She knows she's not been good. She should have gone to the bad place, but she somehow ended up in the good place. Somebody made a clerical error, as want to do after you die, I guess. And um, so she has to hide that. The problem is, is as she hides it, uh, it becomes more and more clear that the guilt is eating her alive. Well, uh, the, the first season ends up, spoiler alert, where everybody realizes they've never actually been in the good place. They're actually in the bad place. And this is like hell 2.0 because, you know, Satan and his demons got tired of torturing people with, you know, pitchforks and all that stuff. And they decided to torture them mentally. And so they're twisting people around that way. And it goes on season after season till finally at the very end of the series, uh, this is how it works. They've been able to contact the judge, God himself, convince the judge that, you know, there aren't enough people to go to the good place. So let's just get everybody to the good place. And so after you die, you get a point system where you can still earn your way into the good place. And who wants to go to the bad place anyway, right? Now, everybody laughs when they watch that show, you know, because it's kind of comical, kind of silly. But, but I mean, the average American doesn't believe in a good place or a bad place, right? Uh, we, we just believe in death, right? Life and death. When you live, you live. When you die, you die. I mean, it's nice thoughts, right? But who really believes in the afterlife? I mean, who really still believes in heaven or hell? Who still in our modern culture believes in God or, or Satan or angels, the spiritual realm? I mean, much of what we think about when we think about the devil and his angels and hell it's not how the Bible describes it. Even heaven, to be honest with you. 
But we've gotten our pictures of all this from other sources. Uh, Some of our sources are by Dante, who wrote uh, The Divine Comedy, and he wrote about this journey down to the seventh levels of hell. And he talks about the levels of hell and describes all that. And, uh, you, know, w- you know, you see those kind of things and those have been brought into our culture to the point where you wonder, why is it the way it is? Well, it's the way it is because of art, because of story. I mean, there'll be a group of people that grow up thinking that there's a good place and a bad place and it's a, it's a point scoring system, right? Our culture designs these pictures, they paint these pictures, and we just kind of buy into them. It's not necessarily what the Bible says. In fact, why is the devil red? Why does the devil even have a pitchfork, right? Or cloven feet, right? Why does he have that pointy little tail, right? Well, the Bible doesn't describe any of that. But that's our modern character, right? I mean, you see that, that caricature. I mean, you know it even if you've watched Bugs Bunny. You see the devil on one side and an angel on the other, right? That's kind of what we think about when we think of that. But we don't really think that that's true. I mean, that's a nice mythical fairy tale that people invented, especially in ancient days, to scare people into right living. If we can just push people into a good moral life, whatever we need to tell them to get them there, right, we'll do that. I mean, you know, sure, that worked during the time of the Bible, or that worked, uh, definitely worked during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, right? The Renaissance, you know, all this picture. But you got to be honest, we're modern people, right? We're thinking people. That doesn't work anymore. But the Bible's pretty clear. There is a God. There is an enemy of our souls called the devil, Satan, Lucifer. He's the accuser that he seeks to devour and destroy. Jesus himself said he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's, that's what we see going on. And, and to be completely frank, usually he does it through us, right? I mean, we could decry all the natural evil of the world, the diseases and the earthquakes and tsunamis and all that stuff. But most of the evil in the world, if we're honest, comes from us. It's the moral evil that comes when we do what we want to do in spite of how it may affect somebody else. And the devil uses that. And again, though, I just wonder how many of us as followers of Jesus Christ or church people or people watching online really think about the spiritual world. We probably don't. I mean, we're, thanks to Madonna, we know we're material people, you know, material people living in, we're in a material world, right? We get all that. I mean, we know we can see it, we can touch it, we can add it up. We're very scientific, we're moderns, Right? And so that's kind of our world. But the Bible describes the fact that there's another world that's a spiritual world. And that spiritual world affects the real material world because the spiritual world is just as real. We just don't see it. And we go, I don't know, should I really believe in that? Could I believe in that? It seems far-fetched. The problem is, is if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus believed in it. Okay, Jesus believed in a devil, spoke about him called him Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, you know, this idea of this enemy. Jesus believed in demons. He cast a lot of them out of people, right? He talked about that. There was a great spiritual battle at the time of Christ going on. And uh, not only did Jesus believe it, 
guys like Paul believed it and wrote about it. James, Jude. I mean, you look at you look at people like Peter. They write about it. And these are the followers of Jesus, right? These are the ones that are leading the church that are connected to Jesus in very personal, intimate ways. And they align with Jesus. And, and my philosophy is simple on this. If Jesus said it, I'm good with it, you know, because anybody that can predict his death, die and predict his resurrection and rise, I'll just go with whatever that guy says, right? I don't have to understand it. And to be frank, I don't always understand it. But the Bible describes there is a spiritual realm all around us. And as Paul said, he says, we don't fight or battle or wrestle with the things we can see, but it's the things we can't see. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Now, we do that that way. We attack people. We think they're the enemy, but it's not the way it really is. Our battle is in spiritual realms. And, and so the Bible's clear on how to have spiritual victory and how to understand the spiritual battle and the spiritual fight. It's very, very real. There is spiritual warfare going on all around us. But not just that. There is spirituality going on all around us. And I just don't think we think, excuse me, think spiritually. I don't think we think spiritually because we're very, very, very material people. Well, in the first century, the time that Peter's writing to the group of people he's writing to, the believers, the followers of Jesus who are scattered because of persecution, they really thought spiritually because they were living in the thick of it. They weren't, you know, wealthy, middle-class, well-off people who looked forward to their retirement. They weren't comfortable. They didn't have a life of ease. They were attacked for their beliefs. They were, they were sought out and persecuted and they were brought to death because of what they believed about Jesus. And so they really believed in a spiritual realm and a spiritual world. You go around the world and you find out anybody that's comfortable and wealthy and trust in themselves, we don't have to believe in anything else. But when you do struggle, your eyes are opened to the reality of life, that there is a battle going on and you see it. And I think, to be fair, some of us have seen it because we understand what it's like to suffer these days. We understand what it's like to be in some kind of a struggle or turmoil. And we know that in those moments, God speaks to us in a deeper way, a more practical way than we see when everybody's comfortable. Because usually when we're comfortable, we don't hear God because we're hearing something else. We don't see God because we're seeing something else. We're not thinking about God because we're thinking about something else. But then when everything falls apart, or now we're attuned to it, and we understand there is a spiritual battle going on. And so Peter, as he wraps up his letter to these persecuted believers, those that are suffering right now will suffer even in a greater way in the day to come. Uh, he writes about this, and he, he talks about this. And so if, if you... Uh, See where we're at in chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. This is what Peter jumps into. He says this. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering as you are. Now, he says, stay alert. In other words, wake up, pay attention. You're sleeping, right? 
Have you ever had that thought? I mean, in church, never, ever, never. I remember I did fall asleep once in church. I was preaching and uh, no. Um, I was a high school student. It was on a Sunday night and I'm sitting there in this church, a church I came to Christ in, in California, Petaluma, California. And I was in the youth row and I was nodding. You know, have you ever had one of those like, and then you nod and oh man, that hurts. That's so like a nods and you wake up and they're all laughing at me. Well, I had fallen asleep and the pastor unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to him, shouts out, wake up, we've got to, and literally, and I woke up and I thought I was turning red, I was embarrassed. The only people that knew were the youth group and they tortured me endlessly for months after that. But that's what Peter says, come on, wake up. Wake up, focus, everybody, right here, right here. Okay, stay alert. It's a military idea that says be on guard, be ready, be determined, be disciplined, Be ready because the attack could come at any moment. Don't you remember Jesus when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's pulled Peter, James, and John, his closest friends toward him and he said, come and pray with me. Stay watch with me. And he comes back and they've fallen asleep. It's like, wake up, wake up. I get, I get that you're tired, but wake up, be ready because there was an attack going on. And so Peter says, Just like a person in the military needs to be ready for the attack, you need to be ready as a follower of Jesus. I mean, you need to be focused as a follower of Jesus. Imagine if you're in the military and you're at an outpost somewhere, you're watching the gauges, right? Whether it's radar or GPS or you're seeing scans or sonars or whatever it is, you've got detectors out there and you could just hear, you know, right? It's like, I've got to, I've got to alert the, you know, the boss above me, the authority above me. I hear something. I see something. Whether you've got binoculars or you've got ears on, whatever it is. Why? Because if you don't do your job, other people are going to suffer. And, and so Peter says, wake up and be ready because there is a great enemy out there. And he calls him the devil, Satan, the accuser, Lucifer. He's the one that is seeking to devour us. The Bible describes him and the Bible is really clear. He was a fallen angelic being who at one point was the greatest and most beautiful of all the creations of God and hovered around the throne of God and worshiped God and declared God's holiness, but saw that throne and said, I want that. I want that. That's mine because of pride. He fell and then he led the world into that. And so the Bible's really clear that that's where death and destruction comes from. The Bible's really honest that the pain of this life, yeah, we cause a lot of it, but there's a deeper cause. It's called sin. And sin has come about because of Satan. He says, stay alert. He prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, I like this um, because I I had the chance to go on several safaris in Africa, East Africa. A number of years ago, we were in Western Uganda at a park and we went out early on a lion hunt. We were gonna shoot lions with cameras, not guns, okay? And um, so I had long lenses and all that stuff and tripod and, and filters and whatever. And so we went out that morning on these land cruisers are open, uh, you know, fabric kind of, you know, roofed land cruisers and they're the real deal, Toyota kind of stuff. And we're out there, we're doing these roads and the, the drivers are listening on comms and talking and all of a sudden they get excited. And so we take off up on this little ridge and there's all these land cruisers lined up with all these you know, tourists. And we're sitting there. Everybody's kind of poked out with their cameras. 
because we see this lion with these lionesses and her cubs, their cubs, and then there's the cob. Cob is kind of like a deer, but they call them happy meal for lions, basically. You know, it's a quick snack. And so um, these cob are there, and it's kind of fascinating to watch because the lion is roaring. Now, kind of fun fact, he's just sitting there making a bunch of noise, all right? He's just bellowing while the women are doing all the work, okay? No parallels here on anything, right? But he's kind of just doing his thing. And then, then, then they attack. And he goes in for the kill. And then the little cubs get to eat. It's a fascinating thing to watch. Have you seen it on Animal Planet? All right. It's exactly how it works. How does it work? Well, the cob, the, uh, the victim, the happy meal, <laughs> doesn't know what's going on. Is distracted by something else. Maybe is alone. The herd has moved on, maybe is older, maybe is weaker, maybe has some problem, and that is where the lion goes in for the kill. I think it's the same exact thing with you and me. The enemy prowls around looking for people, picking off Happy Meal Christians, victims, that he's going to devour because we're not paying attention. We're not alert. We're not together in the community of God. We're alone. We're weak. We're not strong in our faith. We're not vigilant. We're not aware of the spiritual realm. And he comes along and just grabs us, right? He prowls around. He prowls. He's looking for his next victim. And he wants it to be you. He wants it to be me. And so he's roaring, looking for someone to devour. And so Peter says, the answer is stand firm. Be vigilant, be bold, be, just stand firm. Stick your feet in, firmly planted on the ground. Realize there is a spiritual world. There is a supernatural realm all around us. The God of this world, the prince and power of this age, and even though the, the world today ridicules the idea of a Satan, man, he is very real. And he is literally hell-bent on destroying you and me because he hates God. And if he can't attack God, he'll attack God's children, God's sons and daughters, Right? He'll go after us. And when we're alone and when we're weak and when we're helpless, he will cut us off and he will attack us, especially if we've cut ourselves off from other believers. You know, sometimes, friends, it's so easy to focus on your own problems that you isolate yourself to the point of destruction. What you need is the body of Christ. And and I understand that COVID has made all kinds of struggles and problems. I get that health reasons, I get all that. But if you are isolated, you're easy to pick off. You've got to be connected in the family of God. In times like these, we are especially vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Let's not fall prey to his, you know, his attacks, but join with other believers. And in verses 10 to 11, he says this. He says, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. I love that because when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're you know, feeling the weight of all this stuff, and when you're in the middle of a spiritual battle, you know that when you can call out to God and you know that he's there, that means everything. He has called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So you are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High God. I don't know if you saw that story in the last week. It was really fascinating. It was cool. This gal who um, was brought over from a civil war in Senegal, and she was brought to the United States, adopted. She, She was raised, and so she's now old enough. She goes back, and she finds her people. She finds her tribe, and she discovers she's a princess. It's awesome. She's a bona fide African princess. 
which isn't as great as you think because that means she's now responsible for caring and feeding and being over everybody. It's like, okay, that's not the diary that I read I was supposed to be, you know, no big dress on that, although she was wearing a pretty cool dress. But the fact is, is that you don't have to go searching for that. You are royalty because God has adopted you as his son or daughter. And he says here, so after you have suffered for a little while, you know, it doesn't feel like a little while when you're in it, right? It doesn't. And Paul says this in, you know, his words that these, you know, light and momentary afflictions. <laughs> I've not had a lot of light and momentary ones, if you ask me, you know. But he said, after you've suffered for a little while, and that, that's a promise that, you know, yeah, there will be a little while, but it'll, it'll be over. It'll just be a while. I'm, not, I'm the kind of guy that when I go to the refrigerator, I look at the milk and I look at the expiration date. Now I have three teenage boys, so I don't have to look at that because we hardly ever have milk. It's just gone instantly. You know, it's like a vacuum is gone. But I still look at it. And I look and I look at the date. Anybody freaky like me? I look at the date because I'm not going to drink milk past the date. I mean, why would I do that? I don't know. It would be bad. It would be horrible. Have you smelled that kind of milk? If it's on the date or even close, I'll open that thing. I'll smell it. And if it even remotely smells bad, which I kind of think my mind makes up, I'm like, I'm not doing that one. I'd rather pour it down the drain. I don't know how they come up with a date. Do they have a conversation with the cow? I don't really know. I mean, now they have, they have expiration dates on Diet Coke and soda and everything's got an expiration date, right? And this is what, Peter's saying, hey, that struggle you're in, it has an expiration date. And there's going to be a day after that, and it's going to be okay. After you have suffered for a little while, he says, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. Those three words mean he will put you back on a firm place, strengthen you, build you back up, get you strong for the next part of your journey. And he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. That's a little doxology right there. That means that, yes, we're going through a struggle. Yes, we've got stresses. Yes, we've got sickness. Yes, we've got all of that. And, and our economy is teetering. And, and, you know, there's political fights here and there. And people aren't trusting one another. I get all that. But when all that's said and done, this world is not our home. We're joyful exiles, remember? And we are looking for another home, a firm foundation where we're standing with God. Peter closes his letter with these words to remind us that even though your road may be difficult, and and I believe some of you have really hard roads, it's going to lead to glory. And it's going to count for something far beyond what you imagine today. And whatever pain and whatever suffering you're going through, there'll be even greater rewards. And friends, your suffering is only for a little while. I don't say that to make light of it. I just say it because that's what God says. Now, I skipped over the first couple verses in this chapter because I want to close with those. And I want to lead us into a prayer. Uh, He says this in uh, chapter five, verse one. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Peter started his letter by saying, Peter, an apostle, which means a sent one, someone who's given a mission. Jesus uh, gave Peter the mission to be an apostle with the other 11 apostles. He was called that. He was commissioned as that. 
But now he calls himself an elder, which is a different term. An elder basically means like an old gray-headed man, okay? Um, and so now I guess I can say that, you know, I'm 56 and I've got gray hair. Um, but, but what it means is someone who has been called or charged, commanded to lead the church, to be that shepherd of the church. He says here, and I too will share in the, his glory when it is revealed to the whole world. Now here's what he says, as a fellow elder, I appeal to you with these words, care for, uh, the word in other translations is to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to you. That's a big biblical metaphor, shepherd. Because the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, those letters, those books, those stories, they were, they were built in a time, they were written in a time when shepherding was real, that that was very much an agricultural world. Even 100 plus years ago in America, very rural agricultural. Now we're more industrial, now we're more information-based. And so we don't understand the idea of shepherd because most of you don't have any sheep, right? And if you do have, it's a little plastic puffy sheep, you know what I mean, or whatever, it's a Lego. You know, it looks cute, right? But that's not the imagery and the metaphor. The metaphor is that God has called some people to be shepherds. David was a shepherd. David wrote about the good shepherd in Psalm 23 and the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And he described that because that was a common understanding of life and relationship with God. And all through the Bible, there is this picture of a shepherd. And there were good shepherds and there were bad shepherds. There were shepherds that just used the position to gain whatever influence, authority, finances, acceptance, whatever, for their own. And the sheep suffered because of that. God judged the nation of Israel because of the bad shepherds. When you go into the New Testament, you see that that same idea of elder or, or, or someone who shepherds is brought into the church through Jesus. And then Paul goes around and he you know, he appoints elders in churches. And today we, we call those people pastors because the word pastor means shepherd, okay? So you don't have to walk up and go, hey, Shepherd Gleason. You know, that would be super weird. You know what I mean? And you know what would be even weirder? If you'd say, hey, Elder James. I'd start wearing a badge and ride a bicycle or something. You know what I mean? The suit. So I get that that's not the word we use. It's the biblical word. We just use the word pastor. It means to shepherd. And I would say there's a lot of shepherds in the church. There are a lot of people that are not you know, necessarily elders because a lot of people shepherd. And shepherding, eldering is an incredible work and a call of God. And he says here what we're to do is care for the flock that God has entrusted to us. That means we're to supervise. This is kind of a summation of shepherding. I, I teach pastors about shepherding and uh, we like to think of shepherding as loving, which is very true, but it's also leading. It's both sides of it. Remember King James, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's because the shepherd led the sheep through the dark, dark, dangerous valley. He's gonna be with me because he's gonna get me to the other side. Shepherds not only love, but they lead and, and they supervise and protect and they discipline and instruct. And by the time you see Paul writing to the elders of the churches, he says, you know, you're supposed to instill strong doctrine in the, in the believers in the church. Preach, teach strong doctrine. Make sure it's sound doctrine. Make sure people know what they believe and why. Make sure that you help people grow spiritually into maturity. That's our job as elders. 
and you know, correct when there are errors. Equip the people, the saints for ministry. Give the ministry over to the people. Elders carry great responsibility. They're expected to be good examples. And so Paul says, Peter says, Jesus says, shepherd. Remember, this is kind of a cool word because you think about this. This is Peter writing. What did he hear Jesus say? After Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, appeared on that seashore of Galilee, and Jesus is there restoring Peter because he had betrayed him, denied him, departed, that kind of thing. But three times that I don't know him. Three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And, and, and if you love me, you'll what? You'll shepherd my sheep. You'll feed my sheep. You'll care for my sheep. You'll care for the flock that I've entrusted to you. And so I don't know if Peter's thinking about that at the time. I would imagine that. He calls people like me and others around here. Take great care in how you shepherd. Care for the flock of God. That means lead and guide and protect. I hope you pray for your elders. I hope you pray for your pastors, your church leaders, your small group leaders. There's a whole lot of people shepherding and caring for you. And I would say it's incredibly challenging for us to know how to do that in the time of COVID. He says this, and he'll close this. He says, watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. What I like about this is, and again, I, I talk to shepherds or pastors about this. He says, first of all, make sure you've got right motives. Because there are some shepherds with wrong motivation. The right motive is watch over them willingly, not grudgingly. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a calling. Do, make sure that when you shepherd people, it's because your heart is right. And any shepherding flows out of this desire to love. Uh, sometimes there's wrong goals. So you got to have the right goals, not because of what you will get out of it. Frankly, there are shepherds, there are elders, there are pastors that do their job because of how that makes them feel, whether that's needed or loved or appreciated or empowered or an authority. Man, and that's a trouble with anybody that's put in leadership. As soon as they're put into the spotlight, it kind of becomes about them, right? Not in a bad way necessarily because they're leading, they're out front, but it can really turn bad if their heart isn't good. There's a natural temptation in ministry or any leadership for self-glory. So pray for them. Wrong motives, uh, the, the right motive is, you know, you're eager to serve God. You're really doing this because you're serving God, not because you're serving yourself, right? Elders are to lead by example. And he says, don't lord it over the people assigned to your care. This uh, brings back to mind what Jesus said to his disciples when they were arguing about who's the greatest and who's going to sit on the throne and all that stuff. And Jesus says, whoa, guys, you got it all wrong. We still get it wrong because in business and leadership and even in churches, we have org charts and pyramids where the people are at the top. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Why don't you turn that upside down? The greatest will be the least. And if you really want to love people, you'll wash feet. That's what it means to be a shepherd, an elder, a leader. And do it in such a way that that good example flows over into others. Don't lord it over, which means don't have a domineering attitude, a superior attitude. Don't force people into submission. 
He says, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders and all of you. Dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is a struggle for any person, leader, non-leader. And I think one of the struggles in this age is, and one of the issues of pride we face is that we think we're the final authority. And if you don't believe that, sign up on Facebook, okay, or Instagram. Because everybody out there wants to prove that they're right. And there's no humility left. There's no civility left, to be honest, right? And so what we need is a humble heart. And if you're struggling in ways, Peter says, I got the answer. Humble yourself. If you're struggling with authority, and we struggle with authority as Americans, right? I mean, I'm only, I was born in 64, and I can tell you the 60s and 70s and 80s and every other decade, there's been this incredible growth away from trusting leaders. Even today, right now, all you have to say is election, and people debate who to trust, right? And we certainly don't trust the other side. Well, all that is dripping into the church and we no longer trust anybody because in pride, we think we're the only voice. And so what Peter says is, humble yourself, humble yourself. He says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up. He will honor you. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. The best way to humble yourself is to express your dependence on others and on God. I love what he says. He says, he says, give all your worries and cares to God. That's, that's the Psalms right there. And, um, another translation is cast all your cares. Just basically means throw them at God. He can catch the fastballs, right? He can catch the spitballs, you know, God is big enough to hold on to anything you've got going. And so give them all to God. Lay all of your worries and your cares and your concerns down at the feet of God. He will hold them. He will care for you. The best way to humble yourself as a follower of Christ is, are you worrying about something? Are you anxious about something? Are you stressed about something? Are you struggling with something? Humble yourself before God and lay that at his feet and say, I don't have any power to control or affect that, but you do, and I give all of this to you. Corrie ten Boom said it well when she wrote this. She said, worry is not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. I love that. I love, I, I love those words because she knows. <laughs> she made it through extermination camps uh, during World War II. And she survived and she spoke and just talked forever, preached and led, just shared everything, wrote about Jesus. And she experienced it. If you worry, according to Paul in Philippians, he says, we're to pray about everything, not worry about anything. You can either pray or worry, you can't do both. But if you worry, you're living like a practical atheist. Because you say there's a God, but you don't give him everything and lay it at his feet. You don't cast your cares. You don't give them all to God. You take them back. How do you throw your cares before God? Well, I I love this from the words of Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 to 29, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's my leadership. That's my teaching. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. 
So I just invite you to come to him today. I want to lead you in a little guided prayer time and um, just an opportunity to close in prayer. And so what I need you to do is, is hold out your hands and I want you to imagine whatever it is that's causing you stress or anxiety right now. Could be a person. Um, if if you want, just move your hands like this. No, just teasing. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been that way sometimes. Um, just lay it right there. Your stress, your fear. Uh, Corey, when she's writing about this, she talks about this. She's she goes to the Lord and she carries all her burdens to God and she prays and says, "God, what I'm holding in my hand is far too much for you to handle, and there's there's no way for you." And she says, "I just laugh, and then I just realize." God's a big God. He can take it all. So I want you to close your eyes with your hands out, whatever you're stressing about, worried about, fearful about, thinking about. With that in mind, just you're going to give it to God. And I want you to repeat these simple words after me. Say them after me. Heavenly Father, you know the problems I face today. You know my discouragements. You know my failures. You know my weaknesses. You know my worries. But I'm going to choose to cast them on you. I'm going to choose to trust in you. I trust in your strength. I trust in your wisdom. I trust in your love for me. Give me your peace today. In Jesus, amen.